Welcome to the Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company. Our guest on this week's Tradfest Tradcast is the legendary Galway fiddle player, flute player, and sometimes piano player, founding member of Daydonan, Frankie Gavin. Frankie, it's really good to meet you. You're here because you just got into Dublin Airport this morning, back from the United States. Yes. The United States is very good to me. And, uh, of course, I've got three children living over there as well. So, But I, I'm very busy over there, and I'm delighted to say so. You know, it's a, it's a massive country. It's a great country. And, you know, um, you can be busy all year round in America if you wanted to live over there. And I did live over there for a while, but I found that... It, it, the, the homesickness kind of got to me at the end, you know, and I just couldn't take it anymore. So it's great to be back in Ireland, but it's a bit of a haul back and forth, but sure, it's well worth it. We'll talk about the States actually shortly, but speaking of home, first, you're Galway born and bred. Yes, indeed, yeah. Uh, a place called Corndulla, which is about 10 miles north of Galway, towards, we'll say, towards um, towards Hedford, in that direction, and uh, not too far from Dolores Kane, actually, Uh we were in neighbouring parishes, as it were. She's in Cahalistrana, we were in Cardinal so. Um, and But I live in Uchtarard now, which is out halfway between Galway and Clifton. It's nice, it's nice out, you know, it's out by the lake and all that kind of stuff, and it's nice. It's There's not really any music there, and maybe that's a good thing, <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's it's a bit scarce on traditional music in Uchtarard. It was never a town that you'd hear a few tunes in, and it still isn't a town that you'll hear a few tunes in, unless you go down and play them yourself. Well, this is just what I was going to say. Maybe they don't need it when they've got Frankie Gavin in their midst, you know. <laughs> I, go, I do, go down occasionally to do, a, you know, a programme or something like that, you know what I mean? We might film something in, in, in Powers Thatch Pub, which is a lovely little spot, you know. And what about music then? You, as a as a child growing up, you, you are known worldwide uh, as a fiddle player and people know you as a flute player too, as I do myself, because you made uh, some recordings on the concept group. But where did it begin for you? I know your brother plays and your sister. Yes, indeed. Well, I have... Uh, my my brother is the eldest of the family and then I've got two sisters and I'm the youngest. Uh, there was music, as the saying goes, in the family. My father played the fiddle, my mother played the fiddle. Um, I got a tin whistle for my fourth birthday and it's kind of made sense to me after I got it. It just sort of... Do you know how you put... Now, nowadays, it's put a, a computer into a child's hand and they, they seem to know what it's about. But in my case, it was just the Humbleton whistle. And and, uh, and I took off from there. I just started playing, you know, Roddy McCarley or one of those oh, simple tunes, you know, um, at the age of four. And when I was about uh, 10, uh, you mentioned my brother, Sean, great, he's a great box player. Uh, he encouraged me to pick up the fiddle because he said, you know, if we're going to be doing duets together, the fiddle would be better with the box than 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 than, than, uh, than the uh, than the tin whistle. And but if my father gave me the the starting start off on the fiddle, and um, from there, uh, Sean says to me, he said, um, here you should learn this tune. It's called the Broken Pledge, which is no simple tune. And he says, do you know something? He says, you might as well be learning a hard tune as a simple one. And, you know, it was a funny psychology that he came up with at the time because, you know, he's not that much older than I am. But I thought it was brilliant because every tune, after I'd learned the Broken Pledge, everything else was very simple <laughs> because the Broken Pledge is a difficult tune. It's probably a tune that might have suited the accordion, mind you. I think so. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> an accordion tune, as people say. Yeah, yeah, but he was he was thinking ahead all right, you know. But uh, we enjoy playing together as well. And uh, But he was he was a great influence on me. And from that age, let's say from four to ten, and you playing the tin whistle, 
Were there any other influences? Did you get lessons, classes, any of that? Not at all. Not a blessed bit. Uh, I fooster on on a piano. If if you know when, when we had, when we got a piano, I started playing. You know, as I say, foostering with that. I there was the only other instruments then the one in the house were was an accordion. So I play a bit on that as well. And there was an old couple of tin key melodians lying around that I discovered in an attic one time. In this, uh, we had a little thatch pub in in Corndilla. And how I got up into the attic, to this day I can't remember how I got up there, uh, because I don't remember any sort of steps or ladders or anything like that, you know. But I remember looking down through the floorboards of the attic, looking down into the pub, because the floorboards were red rotten, so it was the grace of God I came down alive out of it in the first place. But I discovered there was two tin key melodians sitting in the attic. What they were doing up there, I have no idea. I thought, that's the wrong place for these two, so I brought them back down. So I kept squeezing them every day after that as well. So I played a bit in the accordion as well. <laughs> so, and would you be partial to a tune on the melodion nowadays? Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Oh, God, I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's something about the Tin Key Melodion in, in particular that I love. Uh, all the great recordings that were done in America by the likes of PJ Conlon or Peter Conlon, as he was known. He just, I, I'm in s- such admiration of that man's playing and... Uh, uh, he, his, his style of playing and the power of it and the life in his music was just powerful and there's something about playing with the Tin Key Melodian player like there's a young girl down in Waterford her name is Emma Corbett and she's what, she's 18 now I think and you have to hear her playing the Tin Key Melodian it's absolutely outstanding so we've, we're going to do some recording together as well because we're going to do a tribute to the Flanagan Brothers, would you believe, and Mark Murray, and he happened to be involved in the the banjo, and we were down playing for the, the Flanagan Brothers, who came from Waterford and all that stuff. I am got off on a tangent no, here, okay. sorry Keep about going. that. But, Keep uh, going. but the Flanagans were a great family of uh, three brothers from Waterford uh, who went to America. And we actually, I came across the song called My Irish Mollyo, which Mike Flanagan uh, used to sing and had a huge hit within America. And I convinced Maura O'Connell to, to learn my, my Irish Malio absolutely against her will, I may as well tell you. But, uh, but it was a huge success for us. It made, made, made stars out of us in Ireland, that's for sure and certain. We, we had to, that song had to be done probably twice a night, certainly once. I mean, you wouldn't get out the door without doing it, and then we'd have to do it again. <laughs> it was a, a, an extraordinary success story for us. But the Flanagans, anyway, and and uh, and the Tin Key Melodian. So Emma Corbett is going to be playing on that with myself and Martin, and uh, probably Colm O'Quivia and on the guitar as well. We're going to try and um, recreate the sound of the Flanagan Brothers. That sounds very very interesting. I have to say, when do you intend to get stuck into that particular project? Well, we're hoping to sort of sometime in in sometime this this coming month, sometime this June, really, yeah. It's in the middle of June, I'd imagine, you know. So this year is not like a long term. Oh project. no, it'll be this year, yeah, definitely. And the Flanagans, yeah, the Flanagans give me a copy of every recording that the Flanagans, the, the Flanagan family, you know, the descendants, they give me a, a recording of all the all the music that the Flanagans recorded, and I'm telling you, it's some collection, really. Oh, they, were, hun- they, they were incredible, yeah, banjo and box, yeah, absolutely brilliant. Okay, let's go back so a small bit because I'd like to talk to you a bit more about all of that anyway. You mentioned Maura O'Connell because she sang with De Donnan, which is the band that you played with all, yes. for all those years. But before that, and you as a fiddle player, because you're known as a fiddle player, you developed as a fiddle player, but your technique was very much your own. Who were your main influences? Okay, well, certainly uh, the 78 recordings of um, Coleman, Michael Coleman, and James Morrison, those two in particular, and Frank Quinn to some degree as well. 
they would be the earliest possible recordings that I would have listened to. Um, my brother got me recordings of Sean Kane, Tommy Peoples, and I'd say probably Sean Kane and Tommy Peoples and Tommy Potts would be the three series influences I had when I was as I grew up. I heard Tommy Peoples playing in E flat. He tuned up his fiddle. He was a half tone, half step up. And I've had mine in E-flat ever since. <laughs> so I can thank Tommy for that. <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, maybe accordion players or flute players that mightn't thank you for that, actually, when you show up at this session. But they, they would, let's say they were the musical influences. What about the technical influences on your playing? Well, I went to, I went to, at one stage I went to learn how to read music. And, and there's a man in Galway, a lovely fiddle player, himself and his brother, the, the Rabbits brothers, the Rabbit brothers. And... Uh, Martin Rabbit and and uh, uh, what was his brother's name? Eamon. But I w- went to learn how to read music. I said to my mother I'd like to go to learn how to read music because I just thought it would be a good thing, you know, uh, to do. And so she started me off in these classes every Saturday morning. I'd go to Martin Rabbit, and suddenly I had to re hold reposition. I mean, I was holding the fiddle in you know in the, in the f- at the palm of my hand. You know, I was holding the bow wrong. Everything was wrong. So I had to really sort of rethink the whole thing and start again from a, from a physical point of view. That had to completely change. And thank God it did, you know, and thank God I did, did go to him because it just, it just made, made playing actually simpler then, you know, as time went on because you're actually holding the thing properly, you know. And he had great bowing techniques himself. And so he said, you know, like look at people like you know, the likes of Sean Maguire and people like that. Now, Sean Maguire had the most extraordinary bow hand I've ever seen because it barely moved, <laughs> it was full of sound, you know. So he was a huge influence on me as well, come to think of it, you know. But uh, I did learn how to read music, as I say, but not for long, because after a while I'd be, uh, the, the, the notes of the piece that I was reading had sunk in, and Martin would say, okay, where are you now? On the, on the, and I wouldn't know where I was, because I had, <laughs> I had learned it off by heart. <laughs> so a powerful ear, of course. I suppose, you know. Then, and he said, well, look at this, there's no point in you coming in here wasting your mother's money, you know. So off I went and that was that. And I'm not really able to read music. I'm re- I can read note by note, but I don't, I haven't the timing figured out at all. But a byproduct of that was that you actually learned proper fiddling technique or violin playing technique. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This, this is hugely important and hugely helpful. And, and in fact, anyone that's out there learning the fiddle and that are, have been classically trained, you can use those techniques very easily and very simply. Uh, in traditional playing, you know, because, I mean, what you do learn with the bowing and the fingering and everything like that is it's an extraordinary skill in itself. And I, I was teaching somebody recently who was a very good classical player who could play all of extraordinary pieces. She was brilliant, right? And yet when, when she went to play an Irish tune, it sounded just like she was trying to, pl- she was trying to play it the way she, was, she thought she was hearing it or something. It was extraordinary. And I said, well, look, you know this thing on the, with the bow, you know, you know, something like that. So I gave her a couple of tunes that had some of these really swift bowing techniques. And her playing transformed, like, in five minutes, you know. Is that something you do now, actually? Do you do a bit of teaching? I do a bit of teaching, but I, I'm not very fond of it somehow, Kieran. And I don't know, I don't know what it is. He kind of gives me a pain in my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not being mean about it, but, yeah. I mean, it's, people tell me, oh, God, you're a terrific teacher and all this kind of stuff. And I don't think I'm a, I don't think I'm a good teacher. 
But I'd imagine that that's what, what you gained all those years ago because a lot of traditional fiddle players didn't go that route. They picked it up and played it, yes. whereas which is what you did originally, yeah. but you went back to kind of to, to stage one, really, yes. and learn how to hold it again, how to hold the bow. So yeah. I'd imagine all that sort of information would be very important. Yeah, you, well, I mean, I, when I give a class to somebody, I'd say, look, I'll, I'll, I'll transform your playing for you if you're prepared to do you know, the techniques that, that I'm asking you to do. And you won't need to come back to me. I said, it's like it's just a once-off class, that's it, you know? I don't believe in, you know, going back and forth and learning, teaching tunes to people. That's ridiculous. Okay, so you're available for teaching, but you might be a grumpy teacher. <laughs> Take it as grumpy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a few other. There's actually, apart from your, your fiddle playing, some incredible performances during your life too because you played from, for some fairly important people. I'm just looking at some of the names and I, 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 I'm just wondering what age were you when you played for John F. Kennedy? I was six. I was six years of age. And how did that evolve? It came about, yeah. Um, we, well, I was six and I was, as I say, the youngest of the family and, and, and uh, I'd, my father had put it together. I don't know how it came about really but we were, we were actually performing on what you might call a kind of a natural stage, which is outside the front of Carl Hitchens' house, ironically, Carl and Celine Hitchens' house in Salt Hill. And it was a perfect little bandstand because it was a kind of a high wall and we were all, yeah, and, the, and the high garden. So we were standing up there when there was an, an old speaker and a few microphones and my father was standing there with the American flag. I can still see it. I have the black and white pictures of this. It's, I, must, I must send them on to you. But uh, it was quite an experience. I didn't get to meet him, sadly, but we certainly played for him. And that was quite... It was just like I can see it today as as vividly as it it was then. Then you developed a sort of a a habit of playing for American (laughs) presidents, I think. Was Clinton the next one you played for? Uh, The next one was George Bush, actually. Well, you played for Bush as well, did you? Uh, I I, I was getting these emails from all sorts of... And it was like... uh, you know, the White House is trying to make contact with you. I thought this was a load of spam that I was getting, to be quite honest with you. And eventually, like, I thought, good Lord, this, this is ridiculous. Was, and they contacted Coulthus Coulthier, and they contacted uh, the IMRO, they contacted the Performing Rights Society. They're, I mean, they were, you know, it was extraordinary. But anyway, I did, I did make the phone call anyway and went out and played for... It was his final year, George Bush. And um, I must say he was quite a character, very, very funny man. And, and and giddy and 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 just a character, you know. And we had we had quite a few laughs together and a couple of beers together as well. That was that was. Where was that? That was in in the White House. In uh, that's what year was that? That's what was his last year? I'd have to think about that now, Karen. I can't remember. But it was it was his final year anyway. And then then and then um, Obama was in the following year, and we were up to do that as well. We went out to Nancy Pelosi, who's the House Speaker. Uh, invited us out to play for her luncheon that she that she hosts every I, year. I'm curious as to how it, why George Bush would I've be no, contacting Frankie Gowan no, in Ireland to come they, and play. They for wanted us. they wanted a fiddle player, and that was it. And it's, you know we've there was some the the line of the of the the message was we have grown to appreciate and enjoy your wonderful music and all this kind of stuff, and we'd like you to come and play. Blah 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 blah. You know on St Patrick's Day, but we'd be here hear a good one. So anyway, so they, they sent an invitation, but they sent an electronic invitation, which was fine, but they actually sent the, the your gold embossed invitation as well, which didn't arrive to my house before we left, okay? So anyway, so I had the printout of the, of the, <laughs> the email printout of, 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 of the invitation, and I showed this to the, to the lads, the customs and immigration people in Shannon, <laughs> and they held it up like this, you know, by the corner of the page, you got this from the White House, I don't think so. <laughs> well, I said, you might like to ring the number that's on that. 
double check. And sure enough, they rang the White House to see if this was legit or not, you know. They suddenly became very nice then in the immigration department in Shannon, you know. They couldn't do enough for you, type and, of thing. And proper order. You played, of course, for Bill Clinton as well. Yeah, that was in Dublin. Yeah, and uh, for Barack Obama? Well, yes, yeah, when Barack Obama and the First Lady came to, to, to uh, Moneygall, I was invited down to play for that. And I must say, that was, of all the different experiences, I think that was the one I really enjoyed most, because I, Obama was inside the counter filling pints of Guinness, and I was drinking them. <laughs> so that was that was quite a kick, you know? But um, I was playing, you know, when they were coming in, I was playing a couple of tunes and then I, you know, kind of faded that out and they walked around and shook hands to everybody and the first lady gave, shook my hand and gave me a kiss, if you please. I, I was like, and it, oh God, I thought I was going to faint. It was brilliant. So we had a great fun. I was playing, playing away while, the, you know, we were drinking and chatting away. And, and when they were leaving, I said, I said, I just want, there's one little piece that I'd like to play for you that I used to play with a great jazz fiddle player called Stefan Grappelli I said oh she says oh I, I heard of him she says and I said well this is a tune we used to play together and it's an old Nat King Cole song she says oh I love Nat King Cole and I said well this is especially for you it's called Mona Lisa so I play that for her and then she gave me another kiss and then she left <laughs> it was a day to remember I have to I thought you were going to say she brought you away in the car that time with you your friend I'd have gone to <laughs> I'd have gone it's an incredible history all those American presidents playing for them and that you were kind of part of all of that and you've seen these people up close yeah. of them all you mentioned Bush there was actually a bit of crack he was he was a, he was a terrific giggle altogether you know and he has he has a kind of a giddy kind of a laugh as well as you probably as everyone knows he has a kind of, <laughs> kind of a laugh like that but he was lovely but I must say, um, I mean, Obama was, is it, uh, such, uh, you know, you know you're in the company of absolute greatness when you're in, you know, when you're in his company. His voice, and as my father used to use the word, his countenance, you know, he had a lovely countenance and just a lovely, gentle person, you know. Um, but as I say, you'd know that you were in the company of greatness. Now, you mentioned your father and your mother, actually, quite lovingly, the way you, you speak about them. They were hugely influential on yourself and your yes, development musically. I met you, I think, maybe you were about 18 or 19, and at that stage, I think, De Donnan was started. When did De Donnan start? 74, I think it was. About 74, 73, 74. And this explain year. that effort, how it actually came together. Well, I, I knew from, from, uh, from an early age that I was going to be playing music as a, for a living, right? which my father in particular didn't at all approve of because, you know, his memories of fiddle players was a travelling fiddle player that came into our pub and the fiddle was under his coat. And I not I don't mean in a case, it was in under his coat and no case and, and a cork to keep the hair on the bow tighten, you know. And uh, so that was his image of a travelling fiddle player type of thing, you know what I mean? So he obviously he sort of must have thought, oh, God Almighty, that's the direction he's going to go in, this is terrible, you know? So he tried to turn me off being a professional musician. But at, I mean, when I was like 15 or 16, I was going out with uh, John Lewis, uh, John and Breda Lewis, and they have a daughter and a son, uh, Liam and Patsy. And uh, he asked me, would I come out and teach Liam the fiddle? Uh, on Sunday mornings, and he'd pick me up and everything, which he did. And after teaching Liam at the house, and we'd have a bit to eat and all the rest of it, then we'd go to the session, which was on in Hughes's pub in Spittle every Sunday morning. There was a Sunday morning session. And Alec Finn was living in Spittle at the time. Charlie Piggott was teaching or lecturing in the university in Galway. And he used to go out every Sunday morning. 
and and Johnny McDonough used to go out every Sunday morning. So we were there as part of the Sunday morning session, and John Lewis would be there, Breed would be there, Patsy and Liam, and whoever else might be visiting, you know. And at one stage, it kind of accidentally that the four of us, you know, we'd play a piece together, just the four of us, you know. Somebody said, oh, play a tune there yourselves, lads, or whatever, you know. And we would. And then we kind of started making a habit of that. And then we started getting together just the four of us on, on different occasions for a session and stuff like that. But when we were there one Sunday, Phil Callery from the Voice Squad was down in, in Spiddle for the weekend. And he used to run a folk club called the Neptune Rowing Club in Island Bridge. You probably remember that place, do you? I'm sure you played in it many times. But he said, would you, would you like to, would you fancy coming up and playing up there sometime? And we said, okay, fair enough, you know. So Charlie Piggott picked the name, did Alan, which, you know, some people get it right and some people get it wrong when they're pronouncing it. And <laughs> God be good to Brady Flaherty. She was the mayor of Galway one time. <laughs> she got a really kind of <laughs> haywire and she called us the Dead Onions. <laughs> Somebody said, that might be a better name for you altogether, <laughs> the Dead Onions. <laughs> but anyway... She was she was presenting us with something the keys of the city or the you know whatever you get for after doing some achievement or other overseas and whatever you know but anyway but that's how the name came about and then somebody after we played the gig up in up in up in uh, the Neptune Road Club said would you not have somebody to sing a few songs to break up the music and I said well I know exactly who's who will be fit fit that bill perfectly and I said it'd be Dolores Kane these lads hadn't even I don't think they even but certainly Ali hadn't heard of her uh, so the next thing was Dolores came on board and the rest is history as the saying goes. The rest is definitely history because that was it was groundbreaking at the time because it was a different combination of instruments. It was the fiddle, banjo was the sound yeah. and this Greek bazooki. It was powerful. Yeah. It, it, it had that simply unique um, flavour to it. Planksty were huge at the time, you know, and the next thing was we were kind of coming in on their heels a small bit with our sound, you know, because it was as fresh as a daisy, you know what I mean? And it just... It was a really exciting time, you know, at that time when we started. We, we started a little bit before you, I think. <laughs> but it was a wonderful, exciting time, as you found as well, I'm sure, you know, because the interest in the music and people were, like, going all over the country to, to following it. And, you know, we were putting in nice numbers of people into, in, into different halls or hotels or whatever, wherever we might be playing, you know. It was really exciting. It was an incredibly interesting era, actually, wasn't it, through the 70s into the early 80s because there was so much development and the whole idea of playing in a group and coming up with new arrangements of songs and tunes and all of that. Well, that's, and that's what, what inspired me to... I, went, I was in America a, a num- well, a number, several times, of course, but at the, in the early stages I met with, with Richard Nevins and Dan Collins. Dan Collins has now passed away, I'm afraid. But Richard said, I've got all these 78s of traditional Irish music out in my house and you can come out and you can record the whole blooming lot of them if you want, you know. So he set me up at his house in New Jersey with the, with the uh, cassette machine and all of his 78s and I brought all the recordings that I could of bands particularly I was, and that I was infatuated with box players as well for some reason. I thought, God, Sean, the brother will like this. And, but it, uh, it wasn't a style of music that Sean played at all. But... Morton O'Connor picked up on it, good old, and so did Jackie Daly. And they really got into it, and then later on, Aidan, Coffee, and so on. But the music from then had a huge influence on us as well. And as I mentioned already about the Flanagan Brothers and My Irish Molly O, uh, the, the music and the tunes that people played, you know, and the versions of them, 
we started, you know, adopting those into our collection and we wound up doing a, a sort of a, a 1920s album, if you like, which we wound up calling Star Spangled Molly, <laughs> which was the biggest seller of all, all albums we ever had. It was an extraordinary success. Who and came up with the title for that album? Uh, I think, I think, I think Alec did. Alec Finn did. He was a great one for coming up with uh, but he was a great one especially for coming up with the artwork because he's a fantastic artist and he did all our, our album designs you know over the years and they're all works of art really they're beautiful and that particular one um, it was like opening out an old 78 because there was a kind of an inner envelope and you'd lift that out and it all fit in like a hand and a glove it was lovely it was beautifully done but uh, so we, we, we came up with that idea for that particular album on a, on a, a bus that we were driving well Kevin McLeod the Scottish roadie we were driving from, from Portland Oregon above all places down to San Francisco which is a nice little skip uh, it, I'm sure it took us the whole day but we 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 were in particularly good form because we had a couple of Spanish coffees in, in Huber's in, in, in I think that was in Portland or Seattle I don't know which anyway we got in particularly good mood for the journey anyway let's put it that way and and we started picking material and, and I was saying well what about this one there's a lovely tune here so we were playing tunes in the van and more of us singing songs and it was the most enjoyable trip road trip ever because we really came up with all the all the, the, the material for that. Album. Great to have that access, though, wasn't it? To have the access to all exactly. those previous recordings. Exactly, it was brilliant, you know. Absolutely. Because uh, okay, there were old there, but it was a whole fresh, new approach to yes. the music from here, wasn't it? Oh Host yeah, well, we, it. yeah, it was lovely to adopt that, and mm. it was a tribute to them as well. Because eventually, the Flanagans came over. Well, the only surviving member of the family who was Mike Flanagan, the banjo player, and he came to Ireland with his daughters and everything, and. Um, I got on to the mayor of Waterford. He got the keys of the city in Waterford. I got on to the mayor of Galway because he came up to Galway to visit me. And I got him the keys of the city through the mayor of Galway. And he just could not, his life sort of was renewed. He, he, he lasted a hell of a long time after that. And he was quite elderly when he came over. But that he just, it, it delighted him so much that his music wasn't lost and forgotten. He well, I mean, they recorded uh, some amazing music during the 20s yes. and early 30s in the United Ab- States. Absolutely extraordinary stuff. And they wound up giving me a present of his banjo, would you believe, Kieran? You, you must have a go on it sometime. It's a beautiful Vega. It's absolutely really ornate Vega banjo. It's gorgeous. Yeah. So I'll play that if you play the 10-key melodion. How's that? <laughs> Deal. <laughs> that's, <laughs> Let's that's go. <laughs> but you didn't confine yourselves to traditional melodies. You sort of you experimented with... Other songs from other genres and brought yeah. them into the traditional Yeah, Indian. Well, the first time I suppose we got, a, here's the good one, got, a, got away with that kind of carry on, uh, which was Alex's idea that we might play a Beatles tune like Hey Jude. So we start, we were, I remember where we were, we were in Utrecht above all places. And we started playing, rehearsing it in the, in the dressing room, you know. And uh, Jackie came up with the, the, you know, he came up with the, the, the hornpipe version of it. And then, then we stuck a reel out of that as well. And we went out on the stage that evening that very evening, and played it in the middle of the set to see what happened. The place went bananas. Absolutely, it was a massive success. I mean, it was just like, it was like the uh, the old grey whistle test or whatever they call it. But we just decided to risk it and see what the reaction would be, and it was such a success. We came straight, when we were finished there, we came back to Ireland and we recorded and that was quite a hit. And it was played, 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 good old on all radio, on RT. That was well before any local radio stations ever ever took, took, uh, came about. But that was a fantastically successful piece. Then later on, my brother, Sean, said he was after hearing the arrival of the Queen of Sheba, right? And, and, and like, I said, well, that's just, that's an impossibility. I couldn't, I wouldn't know where to start to learn that, you know? So then Morton was playing with us at the time. So 
Martin O'Connor. So I said, Martin, would you um, would you have a go at learning the Green Sheba and teaching it to me? And he did. And he just taught it to me in segments, sections, you know. And then we just stuck it all together and, and, and recorded that. And that was a fantastic uh, success because suddenly people from the classical world were kind of listening and they thought, God, this sounds so familiar. And I mean, the, the Queen of Sheba is not, it's an orchestral piece. It's not really a solo piece at all. But we made it into a kind of a reel. <laughs> but you had the musicianship to do that, though. I suppose. You know, there's no question about it. I suppose, yeah. When you mentioned that Alec came up with the idea of Hey Jude, Mm -hmm. what was the initial reaction to that? Well, my initial reaction, and Jackie Daly's reaction to it was, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. No, I mean, we'll we'll be shot. And the purists, as they're known still as the purists, will, you know, you know, we'll be in serious trouble with them. We'll never hear the end of it. But we might have lost a few purists or tourists along the way, but by God, we certainly gained in the numbers and volumes of our followers after that. It was quite extraordinary. So after that, really, the world was your oyster. It, Musically, it, you were willing to take on anything that anything, you felt. And anything, and anything as daft as My Irish Mollyo as well, which was a kind of kitsch, you know, vaudeville song, which is exactly what it is, you know. But everyone in Ireland knows that song. We still do it. We're still doing it, you know... And it's a huge hit every night, and everyone is singing it. So it has that has that kind of an effect, or had that kind of a wonderful effect on people. So young and old know it, you know. So no. it was great to pick songs and tunes like that. You, you know? mentioned uh, Jackie Daly. You mentioned Martin O'Connor mm-hmm. uh, as two. Uh, there's no doubt uh, two leading accordion players. But yeah. you've had other accordion players in the band as well over the years. Yeah, Aidan Coffey was with us for years, and Aidan is a gentleman and, and, a, and, a, and a great player. And we just actually finished an album together on which Colin Murphy is playing the baron, Alec Finn is playing the bazooki, I am playing the fiddle and Aidan is on the box. And it sounds like a real old, lovely old, new De Danon album. A little it's step lovely. back in time. It's a step back in time. It's called The Corner House. And it's a lovely album. It's mostly Kerry music, I have to say, but beautiful tunes that Aidan chose. And it's a lovely album. It's, it should be in anyone's... So if anyone is a serious collector <laughs> we'll rush straight out now, yes. I want to talk to you about the modern day let's say Dead Donnan but before yes. we do uh-huh. just some of the people you played with the Rolling Stones yes that how that came about was quite extraordinary there was a, a lady called Margaret Wagner who used to be going out with a friend of mine in Galway and then she went back to America and a number of, I didn't sit, talk to her or hear from her for years and the next thing was I had an unusual phone call or a message on my answering machine uh, at home saying uh, do you remember we spoke about this and we spoke about extraordinary coincidences and this and that and the other and I said I was thinking to myself yeah I remember all that you know, that was a good few years ago it was like four or five years previous anyway so she said I'm staying at Sweeney's Hotel I'm on my honeymoon and th- uh, there's some people here I'd like you to meet and will you call me when you get in so I called her and she said Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood are both here with their wives and their kids in a huge busload, right? And they'd love to meet you. And because I asked them last night, they were sitting at the other table from us last night, and I said, "What brings you? What brings you to the west of Ireland?" And they said, "We want to hear some good music." They said, "Well, that's what Ronnie Wood said, or Keith." Then, which she said, "I think I know just the person, and hopefully he's he's down the road from here, you know." So I got the call, and up I went. And it was like, it was like that I knew them all my life. We got on so well. That was before I even played a note. We got on so well. And we, I, I took out the fiddle and Carl Hessian and myself played a rake of tunes for them and we just 
had a ball and we were up half the night, of course, in Sweeney's and we became the, the best, of, best of friends and they said, we're going to be recording an album, you know, in a few months' time in Windmill Lane in Dublin. We'd like you to come in and do a couple, couple of licks on a few songs. That was how the, the term that was used and I thought to myself, yeah, <laughs> sure, <laughs> this is not going to happen. And sure enough, by God, it did happen and I got, you know, called up and... and it was an extraordinary experience because, um, you know, uh, well, they, they were very welcoming. They're, they're absolute wonderful people, uh, um, very intelligent, very well read, uh, great artists and great musicians and singers, as you know. But uh, they made me very feel very, very, very comfortable. And um, our president, Michael D. Higgins, was Minister for Arts and Culture at the time, way back. And... Because I think there was a, I suppose there was a Labour Fine Gael coalition government in at the time, I, I, I guess. But Michael D was the Minister for Arts and Culture, and he heard that I was working with the Rolling Stones, and he's a huge fan of the Rolling Stones, and he asked me, would he be able to set up that he, could he could meet them? And I said, no problem, <laughs> no problem, Michael, because I knew Michael for years and years and years, and he's wonderful as we all know. So anyway, I got a, I rang the studio anyway and I said, "Listen, lads, I said the minister, the minister for arts and culture would like to meet you." And they said, "Oh yeah, we know you're in with the big people, all right. You're in the big, all the hot, hot shots, you know." So I said, "No problem, you know." So the state car pulled around to my hotel, and Michael D was there, and I hopped in, and off we went to Windmill Lane, and he came in and he met the lads, and he was just, it was fantastic, you know. I, I pity I didn't take a photo or have a camera or something, but I can still see. He was delighted, and the lads were delighted, and so, anyway, just thought I'd mention. No that. Twitter at that time. No, not no, no <laughs> Facebook or either Facebook, to no. get it out there. But that was the, your your experience with the Rolling Stones. You mentioned Stefan Grappelli yes. uh, already. I, mm-hmm. I I I really feel that he was he was close to you. You were, you were he was oh, dear to you. Oh, he very dear, very dear to me. And uh, I before you know I had met the wonderful Yehudi Menuhin when he came to Galway. He was conducting the RTE Orchestra at a concert in in, in Salt Hill. And the mayor of Galway at the time, Fintan Coogan, asked me, would I come and play a few tunes for him? You know, from the west of Ireland, fiddle player, blah, blah, you know, that kind of thing. So I met him and uh, and, and wound up doing a, a, a television thing with him for the Bringing It All Back Home television series that Philip King did. But anyway, but with Stefan, I, I mean, Yehudi Minimum was an absolute gentleman, absolute gentleman. But you could tell that he was lost with Irish music, you know what I mean? Whereas Stefan being an interpretive player, you know what I mean, rather than somebody that reads from the sheet, uh, had the swing of it, you know what I mean, he had the, he had the lift in it. But we became very, very close friends. Um, uh, for the first time I took the fiddle out of the case, he looked in disgust because my fiddle was covered with resin, you know, resin from the bow, and I hadn't clean. He said, you should clean your violin. <laughs> he looked away. Anyway, I played it to him, then, then he smiled, and he, there was, he forgot about you know the state of the fiddle, and I wasn't long cleaning it, by the way. But uh, so he, um, so we did. Th- the next thing was we wound up doing a, a series of concerts together called Jigs and Jazz, and we played. The first one was in Galway. The next one was for the uh, was in Denmark, I think it was in Denmark at Aarhus in Denmark. Um, Sven Kelsen ran that big concert there. We 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 did stuff in Scotland. We did we we. Played the first peace process in Belfast, um, all sorts of extraordinary things, and he was just a gentleman of the, the highest order. He was just lovely, and he had a lovely, warm uh, nature about him, and um, he was genteel, I suppose I'd say genteel, but 
you know, he had such respect for music. And his story, his life story, is quite extraordinary. Uh, he, he was spent years in a poorhouse in Paris. His family just put him in there because they weren't able to feed the family or whatever. Um, he was about 11 or 12 years old when he got, got a, first got a fiddle. Uh, somebody, there was a fiddle in the, in the workhouse or something, or one of these awful places. But he used to go out and busking on the street uh, as a young lad in the afternoons. And one day there was a movie theatre nearby where they used to have the silent movies and there was a piano player who'd come in and play the sort of interpretive music or whatever to go along with the film. Apparently that's how it used to work. The piano player didn't show up and somebody said, well, what are we going to do? And, and, and they said, well, what about that young kid down the street? Let's give him a go and see what happens, you know. So he came in and he started, you know, playing improvis- improvisational licks and bits and pieces to the movie. And that's how his, his career actually took off from there. And he was only a young lad. He was a young fellow about 12, I don't know, was he 14 or 15 or something like that. But he did have a tough life. I always felt, actually, there was a great empathy between both of you. Oh, my God, yes. But I just felt so proud to be on the stage with him because he's such such a legend. I mean, extraordinary, you know, and his, and his career spanned for how many decades, you know. And as humble as, yes, and he, he died on the eve of his 90th birthday. And I, I went to the funeral and I went, I went to his house where he was laid out and into his bedroom and all his accolades and his fiddles were all over the place, all, you know, stacked around. And his minder said, you will, you will like to speak with Stefan, you know, I'll give you some private time. So he, I was sitting at the end of the bed and he closed the door and, oh, stop, sorry. It was unbelievable, unbelievably sad, I might as well tell you. Yeah, and even though he had he reached almost the natural end of his life, but yes. that closeness was there. I, I always felt that... Uh, between you. There's another man, Elvis Costello, you played with him as well. <laughs> he must have been really stuck for a fiddle player. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. I think, what's the album called? Is it Spike or something like that? I forget. Is that the name of the song that I played on or is that the name of the album? I can't remember. But an absolute gentleman, a lovely man. In fact, I saw a lovely uh, interview that Ronnie Wood did with him. And he, Ronnie Wood had this radio sh- or TV show for, on Sky, I think it was. And he brought in different musicians into the studio and just jammed with them and chatted with them. And that's a lovely one. That's a lovely program with himself and Elvis Costello. That's well worth watching. Of course, Earl Scruggs was another one. So Earl completely Scruggs. different. Uh, yes, uh, extraordinary. Um, t- t- thanks to Tim O'Brien, um, we, we're, we're mistaken for each other frequently because we kind of kind of look alike, you know. But we went off and did a tour together, and people didn't know whether it was Tim O'Brien <laughs> or Frankie Gavin that was on the stage because <laughs> we do solo pieces and then we go on together, you know. But Tim invited me down to Nashville to, to record on that album and I met the great Harold Scruggs and my God, what a thrill that was. Because there again, like, I mean, talk about bluegrass and talk about five-string banjo playing. I mean, God, you couldn't get better, you know? Back to Day Donnan and uh, we mentioned the accordion players. You had quite an array of female singers that played with you over the years. I suppose, <clears throat> Kieran, you could nearly say we had all the best female singers in Ireland. We had Dolores Kane, Mary Black, Maura O'Connell, Eleanor Shanley, um, we had uh, Tommy Fleming God almighty Johnny Moynihan was with us briefly Andy Irvine was with us briefly but Dolores of all of them I mean of course you can tell by Dolores' singing and the nature that's in her the, in, in her style of singing which is completely different of course to Mary and to Maura they'd be more sort of contemporary style singers if, if I can put it that way but I always thought that Dolores had the voice of Ireland in her, in her voice and even when she's speaking there's such nature in her and as a person, you know, and she's so warm and so good-natured. And 
and so are Nora and Mary, of course. But I'm just saying that there's something about Dolores that nobody else has. Nobody. Nature's finest, there's no question about it. But it mm-hmm. certainly was an incredible combination, that early day Dunning combination. It evolved over the years. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yourself and Alec, then Alec, you, you stopped playing together as a band, we say, in Day Dunning. Yeah. But Alec formed another version of the band. And yes. we now know uh, a group called Frankie Gavin and Day Dunning. Yes. So you, you continue with Day Dunning with the I, sound. I do, and I have my own sort of lineup, and it's, it's quite different, you know, I mean, b- because. I mean, I have a double bass, for example. Uh, Dan Bodwell on double bass, who's a phenomenal player. Colm O'Creeve on guitar, who's a phenomenal guitar player also. And then Barry Brady, who's a superb accordion player. He's just extraordinary. Um, he's from County Roscommon. Brilliant guy. Brilliant player. And, and uh, great to play with, you know what I mean? Because, you know, when you're playing with somebody that you can really spark off, it just makes all the difference. It brings, it brings other things out in your playing, you know? So, so the the story still goes on, and it, it's great. And um, uh, you know, I mean, we have a girl called Bernadine Cassidy, who's from County Roscommon, also, uh, French Park to be exact, and she's a super voice. You know, so we still have that sort of continuance, you know, of great singers and and great musicians. You know, and it's a joy. I'm, I I'll be honest with you, Kieran, I'm enjoying it now more than I ever did before. And you think I might be getting tired of it? Not a chance. It's just great. I suppose when you're bringing in all these younger, new, yes. younger people, that energy and that drive, I presume yes. that keeps you I, young, I, I suppose. It does, the, yeah. it does keep yeah. me young, for certain, yeah. I mean, I'm a long time at it now. That's the you hard know, point. God yeah. almighty, like, you know, I mean, I started, I suppose, really, I started when I was about 16 or 17 with the band, like, really. You know, that's how, that's a quite not... Well, that's not today or yesterday. Did I see, are you in the Guinness Book of Records for <laughs> the Fox Hunters Reel? Yes. yes. Well, I, I'll put it this way. It, it was the, the best publicity stunt I've ever pulled. You know what I mean? I haven't pulled publicity stunts at all, but that one really worked, you know? And uh, it was it was fun. It only took a few minutes or less. And uh, it was just a bit of an old show-off thing, really. You know what I mean? But it, it did get quite a bit of interest. You know what I mean? And it's down as the fastest fiddle player in the world or whatever, you know? What was the process there? You, you, you got people interested. You got yeah. the Guinness Book of Records interested. Yes. Well, the, 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 it, has to be, it has to be filmed. It has to be, you know, recorded, timed, dated. Uh, the camera equipment has to have all that stuff on it. And then it has to be supervised by... So in, the, in my case, it was done at the university in Galway. Uh, the president was there of the college and Mary McPartland was there and different people, you know, five or six different people from different, you know, and there was a number of students in to watch as well, you know. So it was it was all quite official, you know, in that respect. But as I say, it was just a bit of a lark, really, honest to God. And it was around, it, it, what came to me around the time, they used to have this Arthur's Day one time. Do you remember that? Well, it's, they've finished with that now. But it was around that time, whatever, in 2012, I think it was. 12, yeah. And this idea, like the Guinness Book of Records, Guinness Book of Records, Guinness Book of Records, and I thought, well, Michael Flatley is in the Guinness Book of Records for, you know, this, that, and the other, and 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 quite rightly so. Um, so I thought, maybe I'll see when I do this fastest fiddle player in the world because it's the fastest violin player. I don't know who it is, but you know, I know. So I did it, and it was quite a lark, and it just, it was just, as I say, a pure cheapo. And come here, do, do you think Flatley would be able to dance to that? God, knowing him, probably. <laughs> there, there's a challenge. He doesn't do things in half measures. Michael no. is wonderful. And another gentleman, actually, because actually it was at his place I saw you play the piano. This is another okay. aspect of your music. <laughs> I saw you accompanying a singer down there playing the piano. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I, I love the piano. And it, most of my tunes that I... I do a bit of writing. 
and most of my stuff that I write is written on the piano because the piano is such a complete instrument, you know. You have your left hand for doing all the color, coloring in and then the right hand for playing the melody. It's just, it's just, it's lovely. And it's very, it's very um, comforting to play the piano. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be uh, able to play tuned jigs and reels and stuff like that, but I can accompany singing and, and slower pieces. But I like writing tunes, so slow, fast and indifferent, you know. So you always maintained the skills anyway? Yes, uh, yes, and you, you just have to keep it up, you know what I mean? And like anyone that's out there that plays one instrument, and if, if there's another instrument in the house or every instrument you can get your hands on, you should, for younger people in particular, they should try their hand at everything because it gives you a greater understanding of music, I think. The more instruments you play, you have a better concept of how to play with another person because if I play a bit in the accordion, I know, I know the feel of what, what that's like. So it makes, it makes me play differently to, to blend and match, you know what I mean, with whatever instruments that I'm playing along with. So, But I, I love it. And um, I'm in the middle of writing this, uh, um, it's called a symphonic suite, basically. And it's to honour Grace Kelly, uh, Princess Grace of Monaco. Um, I had the, the fortune, great fortune of meeting Prince Albert a few years ago. And we've become very close friends. And I suggested this to him. Uh, how come that somebody hadn't ever written a piece of music to, to honour his mum? So he said, I think it's a lovely idea. And I said, well, I'd love to give it a go if, if you wouldn't mind. And he said, well, that, that's fantastic. I'd be delighted. So it's going to be premiered in October 29th in Monaco. Well, we wish you the yeah, very best so with that. We'll watch out for that, that's actually. That's where we, the we, write, writing of pieces of music has oh, taken me. So it's very interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. And I did mention earlier on that, uh, of course, you played at Tradfest earlier in 2017. Yes. You did a solo performance there, an afternoon solo performance, yeah. which is part of what we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Noel Hill, of course, joined you, a great friend, brilliant concertina player Fabulous, yeah. from County Clare. But you also mentioned that Playing solo now is something that you do as a matter of course because you're just in from the States. Myself. Yeah, I'm just in back from the States. And it, 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 is, it is a completely different discipline altogether, playing on your own, because, you know, it, 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 it really calls in, you have to call in lots of other bits of skills like talking and introducing. And, 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 and by that, you learn, you learn a lot about what you know about the tunes but that you wouldn't necessarily impart, you know, and you'd... you'd You'd be surprised the amount of knowledge that you might have stored in your head about particular musicians or particular tunes or where they came from or whatever. And you only when you get to talking about them and, and, and explaining things in more detail, uh, as a soloist, as I say, that you learn so much more about it. But it is a discipline that I found very difficult to, to get used to. And I'm still kind of getting used to it. When I'm, when I'm going to have to do a solo gig somewhere or a solo tour, I think, like, oh, God... Well, I do. <laughs> it's like teaching. <laughs> Will you put yourself through it? Well, I put myself through it. You know what I mean. And then once you start, it's 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 no it's no problem because you go off. You know, and you 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 take people on a journey with you, and it, and it's really lovely. It's it's quite a, a very 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 uh, enjoyable experience. But I, I'm very keen to get back in and record more stuff for myself. I haven't recorded in a number of years now and it's, it's, it's a bloom and disgrace. Yes, that's, uh, <laughs> it's high time. It's high time. Well, Frankie Gavin, it's a pleasure to meet you on Tradcast. Thank you very much, Kieran. Thank you for listening to the Tradfest podcast. For more information on Tradfest, go to tradfest.ie. Tradfest is brought to you by the Temple Bar Company.